0: Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast from the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine and the AEM Education and Training Journal. I'm your host, Dr. Kida Pensa, and this is what we've got for you today. It's not uncommon for senior academic emergency physicians to work fewer clinical shifts as time goes by, but what does that do to our clinical performance? Today, we're discussing a new commentary and perspective piece in academic emergency medicine, education, and training, entitled, Our Responsibility to Patients, Maintain Competency, or Stop Practicing. We have two of the authors, Dr. Sally Santon and Dr. Martin Pusick, here to discuss it with us. Dr. Santon is Associate Dean of Medical Education Research and Innovation and Professor of Emergency Medicine at University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Her expertise is medical education research, including assessment and program evaluation across the continuum from medical students to practicing physicians. Dr. Pudicic is director of the Research Education Foundation at the American Board of Medical Specialties, as well as a practicing pediatric emergency medicine physician at the Boston Children's Hospital. He's associate professor of pediatrics and emergency medicine in the Harvard Medical School, and his research is concerned with the statistical modeling of learning and forgetting curves in clinicians. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the publisher for a limited time. Hi, everybody. Dr. Santon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to see you. And Dr. Puzik, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I'm so glad to have both of you here to talk about this really interesting commentary and perspective piece called Our Responsibility to Patients: Maintain Competency or Stop Practicing. And as a um clinician who's getting a little long in the tooth myself, <laughs> I found this very interesting. Um but let's start off. You start this piece off with a story about when President Reagan was shot. And it turns out, um, Dr. Santon, you and I share an alma mater. Uh, we both went to GW at separate times. And this is, um, so I am familiar with this story, but can you tell the story?
2: Sure. So, I mean, I think it's urban legend, but I started residency shortly after. I'm not. Not really sure how many years after, but basically the story was um, that Ronald Reagan was shot and was brought to the George Washington Emergency Department and that the chair of multiple departments probably... CT surgery, surgery, and emergency medicine, and I don't know which chair, we'll just leave it at that, um, put in the <laughs> chest tube, um, and that they, uh, they did it wrong, and that they hit the intercostal artery, and that that's why he required a transfusion. And that was kind of the urban legend. And it was literally one that we said that I would tell patients, or as an attending, I would tell patients commonly of why they want the resident to do procedures and not me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it was one of those things that, w- that was used as urban legend. Do you, do you remember that story?
0: I, I, I do remember that story and I don't know which chair it was, but um, it was it was definitely told as a story. And also the legend went that he um, also was still in good cheer at the time and asked uh, or said something like, I hope you're all Republicans um, or something like that. But, anyway. <laughs> um, but I think that's a great story to set the stage for this piece, um, because many academics in emergency medicine, medicine in general, they work less than a full clinical load. And in this piece, you were quite honest about the last time your author group had performed certain procedures. So can you tell us more about that? Um, And was that what prompted this paper? Was it like your own reflection of, gee, I haven't done a cricothyrotomy in a long time? Um, Or was there something in particular that led to the origin of this piece?
1: Well, I'll take that one. Uh, It's... um... It's one of those things that just happens slowly. You know, the, um, I worked full time to start off with and then as things went along, got some funding, got some roles and the like, and slowly decreased the number of shifts that I did. And, um, and then gradually, you know, over the years, found myself at 0.25 FTE. And, um, and at 0.25 FTE, you're doing about a shift or shift and a half a week. And so that, uh, maybe six shifts a month. And, um, and each time that I, um, that I came back on shift, there'd be a, acclimatization phase. And, and then the other thing that, that I saw was that, um, procedures wise, there was just a rustiness to the, to the way I interacted and, um, And so that, um, so that, yeah, absolutely. It's based on, at least for me, Sally, that, um, that, uh, I felt that as, um, as I've gone through my career. Yeah. Um, I'll add just
2: briefly to this. We're part of a group um, that has been looking at competent core versus core competency in residency training. And that's the sense of should the person who had like do you train everybody up to the same level of expertise or do you have a competent core group of people like proceduralists who do the procedures? And that was also part of our kind of conversation. We were also in the middle of COVID Mm. and learning about adaptation and doing things that we may not have done before and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Okay, so you describe in this piece how and why expert performance can degrade after formal training ends so so let's get into that a little bit, talking about high acuity low occurrence halo procedures um and then forgetting curves and um and then what's changing as things evolve with uh knowledge in the medical world
1: so there's a there's um there's the idea that it's you know quote it's like riding a bicycle. Quote, close quote. You know that uh, that whatever procedure you're doing, uh, you'll remember you have muscle memory for that. It's actually not true. And so that, um, any skill that you have degrades and, um, and different skills degrade at different rates. And so we, the good emergency medicine example is your two year certification cycle for your ACLS or PAL certification. You know, the secret's just in that, that, that two years, by the end of the two years, you're not, exactly um, stellar at the thing and so that you need those two-year boluses but the two-year timeline is probably more about practicalities than actually following a forgetting curve and so the the point we raise in the paper is that each person has an individualized forgetting curve and that gets um amplified by the frequency with which you do the thing and the complexity of the thing that you're trying to remember And, uh, and so that, um, so in managing that, the, you know, as you go through your career, I think it, it's, um, you know, you manage it by clinical exposure. You manage it by doing shifts. You manage it by conferences. You manage it by SIMS and, um, and, uh, and procedure labs and the like. But as you go through, and in my own personal example of being a 0.225 uh, FTE physician, that doesn't, you know, it, it, I find it hard to do 1.0 FTE of all of the mitigations of the forgetting curve. I find it hard to blunt the forgetting curve the way I would want to. I do more than my share. I do more than 0.25. And then I work at that. I feel responsible to do so. But at the same time, you know, I think we do need to um, take into account that, um, A, that the forgetting curve exists for everything, and then B, that uh, each of us are individually impacted by our context and by our own uh, um, abilities and um and the like and so that there's going to be a certain amount of variability that we have to have to take into account the key thing we raise in the paper is that you can't use that variability to hide you have to use that variability be insecure about your ability to take care of halo procedures and the like and that's um and that's what we're trying to put forward
0: so you describe in this piece four approaches to maintaining competency. You ask, what can we do to mitigate and protect? So I'd like to go through these one by one. Great.
2: I'll I'll start with the first one, and I, I think the first one is really that um, is that we, there is there's both an external mandate but also an internal and personal mandate to continue lifelong learning. Is that as as new techniques come up, as new procedures happen, as we rarely do HALO procedures. We have a responsibility to our patients to make sure that we stay up to date and that we continue to do those. And I think we all kind of, you know, rebel against having to do maintenance of practice and recertification, but yeah. they're kind of needed um, in some way, shape, or form to make sure that we kind of keep ourselves up and going.
1: And then, and then Sally, specifically for HALO procedures, I think we need a separate approach And, um, and we've talked about the notion of context, you know, what your particular context is. And so, you know, a cricothyroidotomy, who's going to do that on this particular shift, if that's what's happening. And so that, um, so we may have a dedicated core of people who are responsible for the, you know, being, um, swift at these different, um, different approaches, or we may mandate that every single one of us have, um, you know, within a group of physicians has the ability to do that. Whichever it is, it needs to be an intentional decision. And the instruction has to flow from maintaining the performance level, maintaining the competency level, as opposed to flowing from um, time-based um, or even worse, you know, kind of inattention uh, to um, how we maintain that skill. Mm.
2: Okay. And so the third one is, and this one actually probably requires us to be brave, and it is really saying, look at what you're able to do, and are you still safe? Um, So I actually have been at point two, for over ten years, which is barely a shift—barely <laughs> a shift a week. And when you think about when you think about the different locations we practice, the different settings. Um, I recently, you know, a couple of years ago, came to a new, a brand new emergency department in a setting that I didn't know. And so, you really have to kind of look at your practice and say, Am I going to be? Am I going to make the commitment and responsibility to my patients to do what I have to do to be good enough, to be to be you know competent to take care of the things that I'm seeing, or am I better off kind of um, shunting to an urgent care or a physician in triage or? Um, or in a setting where there is always double coverage or in a setting where you might have an EDICU or a PICU. Um, and so really kind of being honest with yourself and then with your leadership to say, this is the skill set that I am committing to be able to maintain and then limiting or expanding or extending your practice based on that. I, ho- I hope that makes sense.
0: No, it does. It does. And what, what was the last one?
1: the last one has to do with the Dunning Kruger effect. You know, we're all Mm. above average (laughs) and, um, and that applies to physicians as much as it applies to the average driver, I would argue. And so the, the key here is that, um, we overestimate our ability to do things. And so that, um, and then if you try to have a countervailing bias towards being, you know, careful and, um, and watching, you know, kind of when you, get, when you might get into trouble, it's difficult to calibrate that. And so the mitigation is to rely on outside information and greedily collect that outside information at every chance you get. And to be open to outside feedback in terms of um, in terms of whether or not you are, in fact, uh, the best person to do this procedure or whether you are, in fact, keeping up with the full spectrum of responsibilities that um, that uh, that your position entails. So my father-in-law was the dean of a business school in Canada, and um, and when he finished as dean, he was dean for a decade or more. Um, he was uh, pushing sixty-five or so, and he went back on faculty to teach. and uh, And people asked him when he was going to retire, and um, and what he said was, "I'm going to keep teaching until my student evaluations go hmm. south." And then as soon as they do, I'm going to be completely honest with myself and I'm going to bow out. And he did exactly that. And he taught for a number of years more as teaching evaluations, a very good teacher and, um, and stayed on cue. But then they did turn south and um, because the students are honest and gave good feedback in the whole bit, and he gracefully stepped away. And so that one of the things that I, you know, am struggling with as I'm, uh, you know, full admission, I'm 63 years old. And so that, you know, as I think about when I'm going to step away is how you do Mm. that. And pediatric emergency doctors who are subspecialties, not that old. I'm amongst the first fellows at the fellowship that I did. And so that um, so the role models in terms of how to step away gracefully and how to um, how to move into retirement or, you know, diminishing or diminishing wrong word, decreasing your role and doing that well, I think, is um, is something that we as a generation need to figure out.
0: Um, and, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned in this section called the path forward that just like your father-in-law was was working off the evaluation of others you know sometimes it doesn't really happen that way in medicine there might not be someone who is you know brave enough uh, early enough to tell you like mm, i don't think you're i don't think you're really performing up to snuff but you say that the system must be intentional about identifying providers who are not maintaining competency in these ways and working to improve their care. So what does that look like?
1: So I I have a role at the American board of medical specialties. And so at the ABMS they're concerned with continuing certification and, uh, and what that can do for the safety of the American public. And so that um, so we all, in order to maintain our certification, do uh, continuing certification exercises that differ by specialty, but all of them have the same intention of improving the average person. And similarly, finding those rare people who really aren't keeping up and having a difficult time of it so that, um, so that certification can have real meaning in terms of, Um, Our practitioners. That model is evolving and should evolve. And um, and so, what that looks like in ten years, you know, with the affordances of artificial intelligence and virtual reality and simulation and the whole bit, I'm, you know, again, laying out my conflict of interest. I'm a paid member of the ABMS, but uh, but really think that that the framework is there and that we should use that framework to create systems that allow us to all. Get better, and at the same time, in those rare instances, to have an approach to the person who really is um, having a, a great deal of difficulty. Now, that's for a national organization that doesn't absolve the local institution that has a much better sense of any individual from playing its role in a systematic approach to these sorts of issues
2: and so, so, so Martin, that's really helpful, kind of on the national level I think on the on the institution the department level, probably culture is the most important thing. you know when was the last time that the faculty were actually trained to do something new, or was there a an error like this morning our our department did um knee dislocations because, you know, it's important to be able to recognize them um, because it's a high, a high risk if you miss it. And so, you know, our departments recognizing the gaps in their own faculty, is there a culture where people can share with each other um, and address the, the, the people, you, you know, those people who come on, you're like, boy, I don't really want to sign out to them because I'm not really sure about their care. So I think it really is, it's a cultural issue, which takes, you know, strong leadership and developing a culture of, um the ability to provide each other feedback and to help everybody maintain good practice.
0: Okay. So the the closing sentiment of the paper is basically that the locus of responsibility for maintaining competency itself is a shared one between that individual and the health system. And I'm curious if there are existing models for this, like what might this shared responsibility look like in terms of like the provision of programs and, and record keeping and also like costs for Training and retraining and time allotment and that kind of thing.
1: To your point about culture, you know, I'm a newcomer to the Boston Children's Hospital, but um, starting in March of COVID, as I like to say. But, the, um, but they have built a culture here over a lot of years of every Thursday going over stuff and doing it in a way that um, respects the standard and respects what happened to the patient. But at the same time, you know, kind of recognizes that our job is not straightforward and is difficult at moments. And so, that, um, so to support each other, even when um, if, uh, if there's an adverse outcome that could be attributable to the fact that um, I'm aging and not doing enough shifts and the like, well, then you know, kind of uh, a. I hope I'm ahead of that, and in writing the article, that sure helped. But um, but uh, B, you know, I think that uh, that there, as we have the ambition. Of getting better and better as a system, getting better and better as individuals, getting better and better as national organizations when I, we will you know kind of look into these nooks and crannies and figure out how to do it better and I think that um that uh, that changing the culture into that kind of open um supportive uh, setup that, that learns from each of these things um, will will help us not only for the situation of maintaining competency, but all of clinical care.
0: Yeah. It seems like a system that mitigates the shameful aspect of saying like, gosh, I haven't done this procedure in a really long time. And pushes people more towards just oh this is sort of expected you know when when it's been this long like we have this program and you get some time to do it and we'll fund you getting that training I mean there I can imagine that there are ways of doing this that we don't do this that we don't do right now that might make it um, easier and less um, less daunting for those clinicians and that's um, that's a real it's going to be really interesting to think about. So thank you for starting it all off um, with this. I I think it's kind of a brave paper, actually. <laughs> I think it's brave to come out and say that, you know what, we haven't done these procedures in a long time, and we need to set up systems so that um, both the individual and the system can look at it and say, like, this is, you know, we have to do X, Y, Z in the best interest of our patients. So thank you very much, and thank you for your time and your work. Thank you. This has been a great discussion. Thanks for listening to this month's AEM Early Access. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes at AEM Early Access, all one word. Don't forget to read the full text of this article, available open access from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal for a limited time. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.